Hello and welcome to the Next Stage podcast by WebSummit, taking you inside the minds of business leaders and cultural icons from around the world. Today, we're giving you a peek behind the curtain of the first online edition of our North American tech event, Collision from Home. Not many people can say they've been called a nut job by the US president, but today's guest can. He spent 10 days as the communications director in Donald Trump's White House before being fired and attacked on Twitter by the leader of the free world. In conversation with the Wall Street Journal's Sabrina Siddiqui, it's Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be here, Sabrina. Thank you for having me. So first off, we're in a very strange time right now, all of us being confined to our homes. How are you and your family doing? How has this pandemic affected your day-to-day life? Well, it's hurt my business. I mean, I, I had, uh, you know, I... I'm going to give you probably more backstory than you want. I was actually in Hawaii with my wife, uh, not paying attention to the pandemic. So I was the typical, uh, you know, buffoon, if you will. I was like, okay, this is not that big of a deal. I had actually gone to the World Economic Forum, met with two pandemic experts in a, you know, in a forum, you know, conference setting. And I said to myself, okay, this feels more like mirrors and it feels more like SARS. So, man, did I get that wrong. I did not think it was the uh, movie starring Matthew Damon and Gwyneth Paltrow Contagion. I just didn't see it. So, uh, And the reason for that is I thought that the lockdown protocols in the Wuhan province were similar to what they did in, in Mears and SARS. So in March, I was in Hawaii on the Big Island uh, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. I got a call from Tommy Bossert, who was the, uh, on the president's pandemic team. He's a close personal friend of mine. That team got disbanded by the president in 2018. He's like, where are you? I said, I'm on the beach here in Hawaii. He says, well, get your team out of that office in New York City. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, no, no, you got to understand, man. This is going to be a disaster, okay? If they don't create a lockdown protocol and some social distancing and shelter-at-home orders, we're going to have a million people dead. So he's this very smart guy and somebody I trust. So I picked up the phone. I called my office. And literally at that moment, I closed my office. And so now I'm in Hawaii. I shut down my office. We moved to a remote access protocol. I flew home uh, a couple of days later. And uh, I've been home ever since. But it has hurt my business. You know, my portfolio got rocked because I was in structured credit. And mortgages really got uh, badly affected, at least near term, by the crisis. And uh, so my number one job is to keep everybody employed. And my number one job is to calm down my clients. Everybody is a long-term investor, Sabrina, until they have short-term losses. So I've been sitting here eating. I've got some major Corona calories on. So I'm glad that this is a uh, audio podcast. Okay. I, I look like uh, you know, one of the actors that I probably shouldn't name for fat shaming reasons, but you know, I feel pretty fat right now as a result of sitting at home for 73 days. I think we call it and the COVID-19. Yeah, the, the corona, is, it's actually the COVID-19, right? Not 15, <laughs> it's the COVID-19. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm sitting here feeling particularly fat right now. Uh, but other than that, you know, life is good. My family's healthy and uh, we're, we'll get through this. And um, this is just one of those things, unfortunately, that I didn't totally anticipate. Mm. And you know, you're talk, you've just spoke about how your business has been hurt by the pandemic. It's interesting that you got a call from someone who was on the president's pandemic team, which as you pointed out, was disbanded by President Trump. 
there have been many reports about just how aware the administration was uh, about the threat of the coronavirus and some of the early warnings that went ignored. When you're kind of looking at the totality of the president's response so far, how do you think he's done? Well, I want to be fair to him. You know, obviously, uh, him and I are sore at each other. I think he's been a disaster as president. I think that uh, he deserves to lose the election. But I want to be fair to him. I think it's very hard when you're getting an intelligence briefing and they're telling you that you have to shut down the U.S. economy. So I don't care if you're Barack Obama, President Trump, George W. Bush, you pick who you think is the perfect leader uh, to make the decision to shut down the U.S. economy. I think that's a very tough decision. So when people are doing the Monday morning quarterback thing and saying, well, he should shut it down on this exact date the way the South Koreans did, our, you know, our culture is very different. We have not experienced a pandemic like this in 102 years. So I don't think that would have happened. I don't care who the president was. Uh, but could he have shut it down earlier? Could he have started to take the science of the situation more seriously? Absolutely. Will there be a litigation of this, Sabrina, at the end of the year as we go into the election? There certainly will. Now, there'll be a very hardened group of acolytes that, you know, the president said it, he can shoot people on Fifth Avenue, they'll stay with them no matter what. And then there's a group of sort of normal people, uh, which, you know, listen, I look at myself, I'm a reasonably balanced guy. I supported him. I'm a Republican. Uh, I tried to support him. I got fired at the White House. That was a very famous firing at the time. Now it's just another dot in the list of people that got fired. But, you know, I supported him after that. I was loyal to him. I tried to help him. But you can't evaluate what he's doing stylistically. You can't evaluate what he's doing uh, uh, from a perspective of humanity and from a perspective of representing the United States and like any of this. And I would, I would stipulate to anybody listening to this, if you were on the board of a publicly traded company and the two of us were sitting on the board together and this was the behavioral pattern of our publicly traded company CEO, we would have to seek his immediate removal. And, and, and if you didn't want to do that, the, the, the corporate attorney, the board's attorney would come to us and say, hey, guys, you're going to have liability here if you don't try to get rid of this guy. So you got to get rid of the guy. So, so to me, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You can never rule him out. He's a very capable marketing person. These are marketing competitions. Uh, but no, I think he's done an in general terrible job. I just want to cut him a little slack due to fairness related to COVID-19 because I think it was a hard thing to totally analyze unless you'd experienced SARS or MERS or that had been part of your culture. And you, you alluded to the time you spent working for him and we'll get into that in a moment but you know you come from a finance background. I'm curious what drove you to first get involved in politics? Can you talk a little bit about how you first stepped into the political arena and what was really driving you? Well, I mean, you know, for me, I was fairly apolitical. I'm a business person. And so uh, I always had a dream. Uh, I sort of believe that people form their idea of who they're going to be as an adult when they're sort of between 12 and 17. And so you idealize what you want to do. And then after you get out of your educational process, you go do it. I always wanted to have my own business. I had a paper out. I was hustling papers all over my town at age 11 and 12. And I said, okay, you know, someday I'm going to have my own business. And I went to law school. I actually thought I was going to be a solo practitioner and practice law. 
uh, but I found the investment world way more interesting. So I gravitated over to Goldman Sachs. And then I, I wrote down in my calendar, the minute I paid off my law school and undergraduate school debt, I was going to start my own business. And so it took me about seven years to do that. Uh, but you know, I have to remember, I started as a financial advisor. So what was that back in the early 90s? I graduated from law school in 1989. They gave you a desk, a phone, and a business card. I said, okay, go out and find clients. Well, I grew up in this blue-collar neighborhood with a dad who was a crane operator. I wasn't affiliated with a country club. I'd never set foot on a golf course. So I was like, okay, how am I going to do this? And so one way to do that was an entree into politics. So I wrote my first check for a guy named uh, Rudolph Giuliani in mm -hmm. 1989. Heard of him. It was a, it was a $250 check. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got involved with this campaign. The young Republicans were the mayoral candidate, Rudolph Giuliani. He lost that election. Uh, which was a good thing for me, actually, because he was the type of guy at that time, we can talk about Rudy today, but at that time, he's like, okay, you were with me, you tried to help me, and how can I help you? I said, well, you know, I don't really know any people of wealth. I'm in the wealth advisory business, and uh, we've got a great platform and a great product, but I don't know how to make these introductions. So he started introducing me to people. So I'll always have a fond spot for him, but I got into politics. Sabrina, because it was a way for me to get a network. It was a way for me to create something out of nothing, frankly. I worked for Governor Pataki. I don't know if you remember uh, uh, George Pataki. Uh, and then he won re-election. And then all of a sudden, I got more involved in other political campaigns as a fundraiser. And so I was the garden variety Republican fundraiser for Mitt Romney. Um, I did uh, support Barack Obama in 2008. Uh, you could go and find that on the internet somewhere because I had gone to law school with him. Uh, we didn't know each other super well, but my friends that were close to him were like, you know, he's running for president and we know him. And I thought at that time, I just want to think about how life works. I thought at that time, okay, wow, I, I actually know somebody who's running for president. I'm going to help the guy. You know, I didn't realize I was going to end up working for somebody that's president, you know, later on. But, um, so a lot of this stuff has been accidental. A lot of this stuff has been experimental. When you're an entrepreneur, you're rubbing two sticks together and you're trying to start a fire and you don't know where the thing's going to go. But for me, politics was a way to create a network and create very good friendships. And uh, it was less about the politics of going into it to be political and then, of course, we had this entrepreneurial candidate, Mr. Trump. I was with establishment candidates. I was with uh, Scott Walker. He dropped out of the waist. I, I went to race. I went to Jeb Bush. Uh, and uh, I love Jeb. Great guy. When he dropped out of the waist race, President Trump called me and basically asked me to go work for him or then candidate Trump. And I said, hey, this would probably be fun. Let me go check it out. And by the way, we got along. You know, he's the type of guy I can get along with. He's a little bit of a lunatic, but at least, you know, I am a self-starting guy, self-made person. So I didn't take his, you know, BS, you know, like these other people that kowtow to him. And I remember, you know, Jared Kushner said to me, you know, he likes having you around because you don't take his BS. You know, you go right at him and tell him what you think. And so we got along well. And I think that that threatened like people like Ryan's Priebus and Steve Bannon. So now he accidentally wins the presidency. Nobody on that campaign thought he was going to win. And then that's when I started doing really stupid things 
which is you get your pride and ego involved in your decision making. So if you're listening to this podcast, uh, recognize that you're human. You may be a self-righteous, sanctimonious person listening, and you may think you're above other people, but trust me, you're actually not, nor am I. And so now I've got the president-elect of the United States telling him he wants me to go work for him. So I say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go do that. My wife's like, what are you, like crazy? You can't go do that. The guy's a lunatic. And so probably should have listened to her, but I didn't. And uh, so he offered me the first job, which would be the Office of Public Liaison. Priebus and Bannon blocked that job. Uh, they started getting their friends in the media to write like oppositional research nonsense about me. Uh, so that job got blocked. I called uh, then President Trump. I said, these two guys are losers. I said, when you're ready to get rid of them, call me. I'll come and take care of it. And so that was like colossal mistake number 475,000. You know, he then called me and said, you're right about these guys. And, you know, I, I consider my singular greatest contribution to mankind the removal of Steve Bannon from that White House because he is an absolute lunatic. You know, it would be like uh, Roy Cohn having a baby with Joe McCarthy and it being Steve Bannon. You know, this guy is a white nationalist with a nationalistic agenda. And, uh, I, you know, you have him and Trump together in a situation like this, forget about it, you'd be in a full-blown nightmare. So uh, I got to the White House. I had my pride and ego involved. I wanted to knock those guys out. Uh, when you have your pride and ego involved, your emotions are going up, your intelligence is going down. And so I made a stupid mistake on the phone with a reporter that I trusted. I said something stupid, but ridiculously funny about Steve Bannon. You can go look it up. And, uh, you know, that got, that got out into the public domain. That was my mistake. Frankly, uh, I don't blame anybody for that other than myself. I'm fully accountable for that mistake. Uh, I trusted somebody I shouldn't have trusted and uh, got fired. And so for me, I tried to stay loyal to the president after that because, you know, it's a very tough job and I was there to try to help him. But you can't stay loyal to somebody that acts like a lunatic. You know, there has to be symmetry to loyalty. You know, and if you're in a business or you're in a leadership position, your staff deserves your loyalty and you deserve loyalty to them. But if you start acting like a maniac, then it's incumbent upon them to call you out on that and try to either get you to reform that or to break from you. Loyalty is not a permanent thing. It is, uh, you know, it's different from love. You know, love should be unconditional. If you're married or you obviously should unconditionally love your children, but loyalty has to be based upon a premise of symmetry and that you're going to do things for each other. You know, it can't be asymmetrical loyalty like he demanded from Michael Cohen or all of this sort of nonsense, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he's a bad dude. He's got some serious mental issues and unfortunately they're playing out right now on the world stage and very smart, responsible people, they need to remove them. And so I'm sort of disgusted by the Republican party because what are you guys doing? You know the guy's a lunatic and you say it privately. You're in the journalistic community. You've heard it privately from Republicans that are supporting him publicly, but think he's a lunatic. And there's only one guy. And it's a guy I work for is Mitt Romney. He's the only standing, respectable Republican. He went after Trump this morning on Twitter related to the vile nonsense that he's spewing about Joe Scarborough and, and the death of one of Joe Scarborough's aides 20 years ago. I mean, this is just stuff that like is so abnormal. The fact that we, you and I are actually talking about it 
and we're normalizing this level of abnormal behavior at the highest office in the land, where that's the most sacred office of public service in our lives, you know, and it's arguably the leader of the free world. It's just sort of hard for me to understand that we don't have brave men and women on the side of the Republicans that would actually call him out and figure out a way to stop this nonsense. Yeah. And when you, you know, when you were at the White House, uh, even if for a short while, were there moments that stood out to you where you were struck by something the president said, or you felt like this is going to be a disaster if he goes in this particular direction or the other? Well, look, I mean, it was, it happened very quickly. Uh, I was only there for 11 days. I mean, I, I guess the thing I would say uh, to the positive uh, for President Trump was my first day in the Oval Office, I had a probably an accelerated heart rate because I was in the Oval Office. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in the Oval Office, but there I am now working for the American president. I'm in the Oval Office where John Kennedy and Harry Truman and all these different people going back to Teddy Roosevelt have, have worked in the Oval Office. And so uh, my heart was racing a little bit. I turned to him and said, hey, you know, I mean, we're in the Oval Office. I mean, you're sitting behind the Resolute desk. Did you ever have like a heart racing moment or were you ever in a surrealistic thing? And he, to his credit, said yes. He said that when I think the first person to visit him as a head of state was Prime Minister May. And he said that he left the Oval Office. He walked down the corridor to go back into the residence to meet her at the North Portico, the North entrance of the White House. And he said he was having a surreal experience that he was the president of the United States meeting the head of state. And then he said something to me, which became true. He said, yeah, so you're going to feel that for about five or six hours. And then there's so much work to do around here that that's going to burn off. And this is just going to be another office. And so I thought that was an interesting comment that he made. It was pretty insightful. Uh, so that was a positive thing. The, the negative thing was like, you know, you're working on his communication plan and you're talking to him. And let me give you an example. Let's say that the, the figure was 86%. You said, okay, Mr. President, it's a really good figure. You're going to go out into the Rose Garden right now. You're going to make a speech. And 86% of the people are doing great in the economy. Whatever the number was, he, he goes out there. He says it was 90%. <laughs> so you, you, he comes back in and you're like, well, it was, it was 86%. I mean, why did you say it was 90? We just got done saying it was 86 He's, yeah, 90 sounded better than 86. And I'm like, well, but didn't, wasn't 86 like a good enough number? No, 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 90 sounded better. I said, well, now you're going to get four Pinocchios from the Washington Post. Like, why can't we just say the information? It's good information, you know? And so the point is, it dawned on me that he has a system inside his personality where he wants to curve reality towards that. And he, chance that you know he'll get to the microphone a press rate no collusion no collusion no collusion you know and he got caught here in the pandemic so the positive was i like that observation that it was very human the negative was dude i'm a pathological liar and this has worked for me for 50 years and guess what i'm going to amp up the pathological lying but now you're having that pathological lying uh, impact the pandemic you can't lie about the pandemic you, know, you can't go to the White House podium and say, okay, listen, two plus two is seven. Let me explain to you why it's seven. Because uh, people are like, well, wait a minute, let me look at my hands. Two plus two, that equals four. He's telling me it's seven. You can't say fake science. You can't scream at the press and say, well, that's fake science. Science is the science. So he's having a hard time with this thing. 
and I think it's really crushed him. I mean, it, it, you know, you talk about the polling numbers off the hook to the negative, and he's getting crushed by older women. So anybody over the age of 50 uh, that's a woman has said basically no mas. I've had enough of this. I had enough of the bullying, the Twitter antics, and, and so forth. Some of them can hold their nose and vote the economy, but very, very few of them. So, so you know, he's going to lose. I mean, it's just, it's just an unfortunate fiasco that's been created. I, I'm not, you know, a Democrat, but I'm not going to be voting for Donald Trump. And I think there's a lot of people that feel that way. I saw something that you said in an interview and because you were talking about what it's like to be with him in the Oval Office or what it's like to try and manage him when he goes out for a press conference or to deliver remarks at the Rose Garden. You once said the honest people in the room know that he is crazy. Um, You know, how much pushback does he actually get behind closed doors from the people around him? Very, very little now. You know, John Kelly did it to him. You know, I used to do it to him. Um, uh, Rex Tillerson did it to him. You know, he, pl- he blows those people out. He's a secure person, somebody that's got a lot of self-confidence. You want strong people around you, right? You probably read the book Team of Rivals uh, about Lincoln's cabinet. Because if you're a secure person, you don't mind other people getting credit. You don't mind other people sharing the spotlight with you. You know, Ronald Reagan had something on his desk. It said. You can get anywhere you want in life as long as you don't care who gets the credit. Trump is the opposite of that. Trump is, I'm the only person that can get credit. If something goes wrong, it's not my fault. It's your fault. But the spotlight has to be on me. No one else shares the stage with me. And by the way, uh, the two things that Trump can say to you that you know you're going to get hit with a ray gun after are, uh, hey, you're getting more famous than me. Well, you know, you're getting fired the minute he says that. And then the second thing that he says is, uh, well, I read an article. They said, you know, President Kelly or President Bannon or President Priebus. See what I'm saying? Yeah. And then he fires you for that. So, so, so the point being is, yeah, he is crazy. He is, I mean, you're probably not allowed to curse on this, so I won't curse. But, you know, let's go with emojis. He's bat with the poopy emoji crazy. Okay. So bat, poopy emoji, crazy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and you, know, you know, people know that. And so now they're trying to work around it. There are certain people that just love being in the position, love the surroundings of the White House and the power of that. And so they'll, they'll curve themselves to this personality. There's a few people there that I still talk to who are like, well, he is bat, poo emoji, crazy. But you know what? I'm here trying to help the American people. And I'm here if I've moved the ball two inches towards something more rational. I've done my service to mankind, womankind in the country. So those people I respect, but they've got to operate on eggshells around him because he's got like this borderline personality tendencies. Uh, and he's, uh, he's a very impetuous, dangerous guy. I'm curious, what, what was the first time that you actually met him in person? Um, and what was your first impression of him? I mean, you obviously have talked a lot oh, about well, him. The, fir- the first time I met him, and I have to remember, he's a very famous guy. He's been famous my adult life. And so I read The Art of the Deal when I was 24 in 1988. And I met Mr. Trump in 1995 at the age of 31. He would never remember that meeting. Uh, my old boss from Goldman, who ran the real estate department, uh, he was potentially going to do a deal with us. Goldman turned it down. He didn't, he didn't get through the commitments committee at Goldman. I think it had to do with the casino bankruptcies and things like that. But 
I went up to his office to see him. And it's sort of the same office he has now on the 26th floor of Trump Tower. And so what I would say is uh, that was a very impressionable meeting for me. I'm sure he would never remember that meeting and, and so forth because I was, you know, an unknown 31-year-old guy at the time. Uh, but he's very charming. He was very nice. Uh, he was the kind of guy that uh, he is a guy's guy. He's the kind of guy like in my subsequent meetings with him, you know, I got along with him. You know, he's a guy, you don't want this guy to be president, but is he a garrulous? Uh, can he be a charming guy? Absolutely. Is he funny? Absolutely. Does he like a good joke? Sure. Um, uh, can he carry a soundstage from a television production perspective? No question. He had a 15 year run uh, at The Apprentice. That's a very hard thing to do uh, in television, particularly in a reality show to have a 15 year run. And he did that very successfully. And so um, he's a talented person. You can't look at Mr. Trump and say, well, this guy's not a talented person. You can say he's crazy and you can have evidence to support that. But, and you can't say he doesn't have good political instincts. He went from being a reality television star 17 short months later to the American presidency. So you can't, you have to be, I think the danger uh, uh, with Mr. Trump is humanizing him. The danger is anything that he says or anything that he does, let's put that through a filter of bad, because then I think it makes it impossible to beat him. Because, uh, you know, what happens is when you do that, his really strong, ardent followers, they, they have a filter, too. They say, oh, they're just picking on him. Let me lock and load and make sure I show up with two more people to vote for him. You see what I'm saying? I would rather come at this from a very objective and a very uh, open standard and apply really objective uh, uh, analysis to the situation, because I think that's how you can move people. Remember, you know, whether it's the Lincoln Project, myself, or other Republicans that are going to be working against them in November, uh, you want to just move three to 5%. Steve Bannon is right about that. Steve Bannon says, whoa, if you chip off three to 5% of these people, he's going to lose. And you got guys like me and, uh, the Lincoln Project and others that are going to be working super hard at doing that. David, David Frum, uh, writing the book Trumpopolis. You know, we're we're all in a loose confederation, recognizing that he's really not a Republican. He's a Trumpist, and a Trumpist comes with a lot of demagoguery, and a, a Trumpist comes with a lot of division and a lot of tribal hatred and possibly civil discourse that is not what we need right now in our society. So, uh, you know, got to go at him objectively, Sabrina. Otherwise, you're not going to be. You talked about the danger of filtering out the bad. And even after you left the White House, there was a period where you were still loyal to him. You still defended him on TV. What was the tipping point for, for two you? years? For two well, years. I was so loyal to him for two point? years. I, 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 my attitude was I'm a loyal guy. Uh, he gave me the opportunity to work in the White House. I made a mistake. I got myself fired. I don't blame anybody for that other than me. And so I'm a loyal guy. Let me try to help him. And so I was out in the media trying to defend him and trying to help him. However, I'm a you know, straight up guy. If you ask me separating the women from the children, I said, geez, I totally disagree with that. I wouldn't do that. Uh, if you ask me about the Helsinki situation with President Putin and he's disavowing the intelligence agencies, I said, you can find videotape. You know, I'm supportive of the president, but I wish he wouldn't do that. Uh, 
I don't think the press is the enemy of the people. You don't look like the enemy of the people to me, Sabrina. I know maybe you have a battle axe behind you, but you don't look like the enemy to the people to me. And so I, I wrote an op-ed explaining why that is a disservice to the country and the Constitution. You, you took an oath at the inaugural that you're going to uphold the Constitution. Well, the press is a sacred element of that. The free press is there to protect us against tyranny. But also remember what the free press also does. It teaches our young children that they can speak and think freely. When you tell a second grader that, they go on and create Facebook. They create Apple. They create uh, Google. Uh, in China, they tell their second graders they can't speak freely. And so they have a much more narrow, limited bandwidth in terms of their creativity. So press is super valuable to our country. I disagreed with that. But I was, in, in general, loyal to him and loyal to a lot of the policies. Uh, but when he went after those four congresswomen, and he said that they should go back to the countries they originally came from. When he said that, uh, that really struck a nerve because I'm an Italian-American. My grandmother was told that. You know, in 1923, at the age of 18, she got here. She couldn't work anywhere. There were signs and placards that said, no Italians need apply uh, in the storefronts in Brooklyn. So she became a maid. She was turning people's beds and she was dusting people's homes. And she was 18 years old and she was told the racist nativist trope, go back to the country that you originally came from. So he's the American president. You can't talk like that. Now, you may disagree with those women ideologically. I mean, you could say, OK, uh, AOC's policies are X, my policies are Y. But uh, she was born in the United States. OK, you know, the, the three of those four women were born in the United States. One was naturalized as a citizen. All four were democratically elected to our Congress. What are you doing saying stuff like that? So I said, that's racist. You got to stop saying that. He didn't like that. He came after me. I'm a New Yorker. So I went back at him. And then he does what he does. He goes after my wife. So, I mean, who does that? Okay, my wife is a suburban housewife raising two kids out on Long Island. He knows my wife and I were having marital problems related to me working with him. We almost got ourselves divorced over the whole thing. And so now he's attacking my wife. Now that's one of the things out of his playbook. You know, <clears throat> he did that to Ted Cruz. He did it to uh, Jeb Bush. Uh, but Sabrina, do I look like Ted Cruz to you? I mean, do I act like Ted Cruz? Are you kidding me? You're not going after my wife without me trying to punch you through the ropes. So he started tweeting at me. And so of course me, I think I called him like Fidel Adolf Trump on Twitter. You know, I tried to get the fat shaming in there with the dictatorship, right? So I I was calling him the notorious FAT and, uh, you know, got me knocked off Twitter for 12 hours due to fat shaming. So I can't, you can't fat shame the president on Twitter, but, but he flipped out and then he stopped engaging with me because he knows, you know, I'm not one of the, he's a, he's a coward. Uh, at the end of the day, I know the guy's personality. He's a keyboard warrior coward. He'll hide behind his phone and he'll say nasty and mean things to you. But to your face, he can't. He couldn't handle the heat. Couldn't handle the heat. To you know, the, the the move for him is to bully people. Those establishment politicians weren't ready for that. But you know, I grew up in a neighborhood. I mean, I know how to handle a bully. You know, uh, Joe Biden's doing beautifully on this. You know, they call him all kinds of names: and pedophile and sleepy Joe. Also, he doesn't even react. That is the absolute right thing to do. The other 19 people that reacted to him, you can't beat Trump at that game, unless you're good at that game. You got to know your strengths and weaknesses. You know, I, I, I grew up in a neighborhood, so I know, how to, I know how to handle a bully. No problem. That's why he stopped engaging 
with me on Twitter or me verbally, he's not gonna be able to handle me coming at him. I'm, I'm not one of these, you know, wallflowers like Ted Cruz. I mean, how could he go after Ted Cruz's wife like that? And Ted Cruz is sitting there being so obsequious. I mean, it's like a revolting thing. I mean, I want to, I mean, you know, you know, I don't know, pass me the vomit bag. I mean, I'm ready to blow chow thinking about he's going after Ted Cruz's wife and Ted Cruz allows that to happen. I mean, what is he in, I mean, I mean, it's disgusting. You, you know, you, All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. You, I'm on a tangent there, Sabrina. Go ahead. Well, it's What's interesting that? you mentioned that you got kicked off of Twitter for about 12 hours uh, for tweets that they found to cross the line. You know, this has actually come up a lot with the president's Twitter account. In fact, uh, there have been calls for Twitter to take more steps to... I think I said he was the fattest president since William Howard. Well, Taylor. Twitter has come under fire because sometimes the president tweets conspiracy theories and they allow his tweets to stand. They certainly haven't taken any action um, to either remove those tweets or to suspend his account. Do you think that Twitter should take more concrete action against the president's Twitter account, especially when he's tweeting conspiracy theories or attacks yeah, against so, people? So I, I think it's a very tough position to put Twitter in because, you know, he is rightly or wrongly the democratically elected leader of the United States or through the electoral college process as dictated by our constitution. And so if you're sitting there as Jack Dorsey, you are like, okay, well, wait a minute. I got to let this information out there. This lunatic has the bully pulpit and I have a social media platform and I've got to let this information out there. The flip side of it is you do have guidelines and standards and he's probably talking to first amendment lawyers and he's probably talking to a whole host of different people as to what is the appropriate thing to do. And I think they decided yesterday after the Joe Scarborough incidents and the actual plea from the husband of the deceased woman that, you know, could he please stop the lies about the alleged affair and the murder of my wife when it has been proven conclusively that that did not happen? I think they made a decision that they were going to tag some of the president's tweets and say, you know, this is obviously dishonest or this is non-factual. And so you know, that's a troublesome thing because now the president, of course, is going to say that was a really bad day for President Trump. You know, I know that I because I, I, I know his personality, the medium that he's using to get inside your brain and my brain is now going to fact check him. Boy, that's a bad day for him because you, know, you can't have you can't tell 20,000 lies and have a little fact checker thing underneath it. it. It delegitimizes your lying effort. So he's going to go after Twitter very, very hard. And he's going to go after Jack Dorsey very hard. Facebook is rolled over. Facebook has said, no problem. You can lie on our stuff. And, you you know, if we don't like an ad, we'll take the ad down. But you can say any lie that you want. And so I think they've become subservient to his power, uh, which I think is a negative. And so, but, but I, I respect Jack Dorsey. I think he's trying to do the right thing. And uh, we'll have to see how this unfolds. But my prediction is, is that Jack Dorsey is going to eventually stick it to him. I don't think Jack Dorsey is going to want to accept his role in history and his legacy being, yes, I had this platform where this demagogic leader that accidentally got elected by the people of the United States used my platform to spew lies and hatred and division, and I left it unchecked. I don't think he's going to allow that to happen. So we'll see what happens. You mentioned that you lost like- a lot of respect for Mark Zuckerberg, by the way, though. I, I think Mark Zuckerberg did this whole thing that they allow Twitter to have this level of division to make money off of it 
you know, sort of despicable. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that you like the way that former Vice President Joe Biden has handled uh, the attacks that have come at him from the president and his allies. Uh, are you are you supporting Joe Biden in this next election? I think I saw you. A thousand percent. Of course, I'm going to be campaigning for the guy. But by the way, I don't know if it's going to be official support. I don't know if it's going to be official support. I mean, you know, if Joe, Vice President Biden wants my official support, I'll join the campaign. If he doesn't want my official support because I got some orange, uh, you know, Cheeto stains on me because I originally supported Trump, I got like sort of that Dorito bag situation going on on my hands. So no problem. Uh, but I'm going to be out there campaigning. I, I am going to go into white ethnic areas of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin and explain to people how dangerous this guy is. And if I can move 3% of those people, 1% of those people, thank God, that may lead to his defeat, which would cause a hopefully a, an awakening and a restructuring of the Republican Party. Because this is the biggest schism in the Republican Party since the Ford-Reagan schism in 1976. And if we don't get Trump out of there, you could see the death of that party. And that wouldn't be good for America right now. You need a, t a strong two-party system. And so, yeah, now, of course, I'll be out there campaigning for the guy. You know, and, and, and my, my favorite venue is conservative talk radio or conservative television. You know, Fox News doesn't invite me on anymore. You know, those anchors, what are they going to do? They, they're not going to be able to debate a guy like me. I got all the facts. I work for the guy. The guy's a lunatic. They're out there doing mental gymnastics and figure skating to try to defend everything the guy's doing. I, I, you know, you're not going to be able to do that with a guy like me. So they can't invite me on anymore. You know, they fight on like liberal pundits who, you know, they can steamroll. Uh, but they're not going to be able to invite a guy like me on. What are they going to do? They're going to call me liberal because I, I think Trump is a lunatic. It's not, it's not, it's not going to, you know, in other words, it's not going to help them with their argument or help them with their ratings. So they're not going to invite me on. But I'll go anywhere. I'll, I'll talk to anybody about the situation. No problem. So why There's do you no venue Joe Biden? that I'm. Mm -hmm. Why would I support him? Why do you support Joe Biden? Because he's not Trump. Remember, this is a referendum on Trump. This is for Trump or against Trump. Okay. You know, uh, there's some beautiful uh, uh, pictures behind you. Pick one of those people. If they want to run for president, I'm supporting them. Okay. I mean, my point is. This is a not Trump vote as a Republican. You've got to get this guy out of there because of the potential damage he could do over the next uh, four and a half years. Mm. Is that what this election is about for you? It is just solely about removing Trump from office? I think that for, I mean, look, I think it's a referendum always on the incumbent. If you look at the historical campaigns, it was for or against Barack Obama. It was for or against Jimmy Carter you know, for or against George Walker Bush or George Herbert Walker Bush. It's rarely about the other candidate. When you have a person standing in the office of the presidency, it is always a referendum on the incumbent. And so, yeah, it's absolutely that. Um, I like Vice President Biden. There's nothing not to dislike about him. He's not a Republican. I would prefer a solid Republican. Uh, but uh, Joe, Joe Biden is a healing sort of a guy. He's a, he's a, good person, good human being. And I would prefer that over this sort of maliciousness and this craziness. I have to ask you, the White House, um, in response to your criticism, has said that, you know, it's self-serving, it's hypocritical, that, you know, you were doing, you're doing this for publicity's purposes. What, do, what is your response to that? 
Oh, I mean, I, I, I know they, they brought that up last summer. They don't, they don't bring it up anymore. They've tried to dial all that stuff down. But my, my response to that is, you tell me, Sabrina, why would I need the publicity? I mean, you know, I, I was a reasonably public figure prior to working for President Trump. I had my own television show. I was hosting Wall Street Week. They also made the statement from the White House that uh, um, uh, I want to get invited to liberal parties in the New York City society. I live on Long Island, two miles from my parents. What, what liberal parties are there? I'm not really a party goer. So, I mean, I think it's nonsensical. If anything, my denunciation of the president mildly hurts my business. You know, it's actually against my business interests to be outspoken about it because, you know, if I just, you know, do, you know, it's like what Michael Jordan said about sneakers, Republicans buy sneakers and Democrats buy sneakers. I'm keeping my mouth shut. I'm staying out of politics. So both sides will buy my sneakers, you know? So you got to think about me, my 27 year old son, who's at Stanford business school is like, dad, you're killing me because the Republicans dislike you that are for Trump because you've left Trump and the Democrats dislike you because you were with Trump. So you're in nowhere's land. And my response to my son is, well, I'm actually closer to the truth. So you know, they're, they're entitled to their opinion. I think, I think what's important is that your listeners on this podcast and other people are entitled to their opinion. They'll make their evaluation. They'll be like, okay, uh, they'll say that I'm doing this either for publicity purposes and it's self-serving or, or they'll say, well, what he's saying is well-grounded in analytical facts and it's well-grounded in terms of who he is as a human being and they'll respect it. So you're never going to win everybody, Sabrina. So I, I appreciate them having to say something like that. I'm sure the person that wrote that uh, down deep is snickering and saying, wow, you know, I wish I had Anthony's courage to say the absolute truth of what I see going on here in the West Wing. Hmm. And just my last question to you, you know, from your time with the Trump campaign to your time in the White House to where you've come to now, if you were given the chance, would you do it all over again? Uh, no, that's a great question. That's been asked of me before. The answer is un undoubtedly yes, because uh, I think that the experience I had was very humbling. I think it was a real world experience to get tossed out like that. The, the public humiliation involved with that tossing, uh, you get to learn a lot about yourself and your personal resilience and who you are as a person. It's also a wake up call for uh, who your friends really are and who your friends are not. Uh, and so I would also say to you that, uh, uh, you know, it's given me a platform. You know, there's, there's probably more notoriety associated with that, which gave me access to people I probably wouldn't have met before. You know, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast with you uh, had I not had that experience happen to me. So as painful as it was and, uh, you know, caused a personal crisis in my marriage, we almost got ourselves divorced. And uh, thank God we didn't because we actually love each other. We got two young kids and we're, uh, I'm very happy that we were able to repair our our marriage um so by and large and i think our marriage is stronger now as a result of that that breach so all things considered yes as grueling as it was it was like literally going through the sewer pipe in the shawshank redemption as grueling as that whole thing was i would do it again it's made me a lot more psychologically minded it's made me a lot more aware of what the stakes are and how people play in politics a very nasty game um, and uh, I think I'm a better person for it. So yes, 
All right. Well, we really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And we hope that you and your family continue to stay safe. That's the most important thing right yeah, now. Yeah, you too, Sabrina. Thank you. Thank All you. right. God bless. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more of these topics firsthand, you can hear all about things tech at Web Summit 2020. So be sure to get your ticket today. Visit websummit.com forward slash tickets for more info.